Yep, good. Okay, what a beautiful song. And uh, I've never actually heard that song before, but to do justice and to love mercy. That's the verse that my husband and I live by as we serve the Lord in human trafficking. I'd just like to start today by introducing us. Uh, We're Stephen and Sarah Morse and our little girl Arabella. Stephen can't be here today. He's actually working as the Associate Minister at our uh, Sending Church. So he's busy working this morning. So you've just got me for today. Uh, So we've been married for coming up for eight years now. And uh, the Lord first called us in our first year of marriage. The Lord first called us to um, serve him in human trafficking. Now when we got married, Stephen was an Anglican minister and I was a nurse. Both of us had a heart to serve the Lord. Both of us uh, were thinking as we got married that the Lord would probably lead us at some point into, uh, into serving him overseas. But the call to serve him came really very quickly in our first year of marriage. And the summary of our call really is that my heart was to serve the poor in Europe and I'd worked in Romania for two years working with orphans uh, previously. And Stephen's heart was for a Spanish-speaking nation. About 17 years before we got married, the Lord had told Stephen that he would serve him in a Spanish-speaking nation. And so he began learning Spanish, he took a few trips to Argentina and other parts of South America. Uh, But the time was never right for him to go full-time. And so all of a sudden, in our first year of marriage, we felt that the Lord was calling us to go. And as we started to pray, Lord, where will you send us? We'll go anywhere. And, uh, And so very quickly, the Lord showed us that both my heart to serve the poor in Europe and Stephen's heart for a Spanish-speaking nation equaled Spain. And then as we started to pray about Spain and who we would serve in Spain, God laid this issue of human trafficking on our hearts. Now, I don't know what you know about human trafficking in Spain, but at that time we didn't really know very much. Most of the stuff that we hear in Australia is about Asia and it is definitely a problem in Asia. But in fact, human trafficking is a problem which is global. Human trafficking is in every country, including Australia. And so as we left, we packed up all our new wedding presents, we said goodbye to our ascending church, we went off to Spain, and we began to research and study and find out what is happening in Spain. And we found out that Spain is actually one of the major transit and destination countries for human trafficking in Europe. Spain actually spends the most globally per person on the sex industry. And as we started to research, and Stephen uh, did his doctorate in human trafficking in Spain, and we discovered more and more information about the brokenness of this country, and particularly the men who are using the industry. And Stephen began to ask the question, why? Why are the Spanish men such high users of the industry? And so that's what his doctorate is focusing on. So when we left to go with, um, when we left to go to Spain, we we went on our own, but we very soon realised that we needed the support of a mission agency, and so we joined international teams. And so, for those of you who haven't heard of international teams before, I'll just give you a little brief summary. <coughs> We're quite small here in Australia. We're an interdenominational um, Christian mission organisation, but globally we are serving in 70 countries with over a thousand um, missionaries globally. So here in Australia, international teams is working with refugees, mainly pairing up um, refugee families with Australian families and helping them to integrate into life in Australia. We have uh, justice workshops, which we run in uh, churches. 
<clears throat> where we go and we educate people about issues of justice and God's call for justice. We recently ran a ride for refugees where we raised $125,000 for the work of refugees here in Australia and overseas. We run short-term mission programs and our street like Sydney, which is reaching out to the women in brothels uh, in Western Sydney. And then there's the end slavery teams of which we're a part. And uh, so that's a global network of people working in the area of human trafficking and end slavery. And, uh, and that's headed up by our catalyst in the Netherlands, who um, has had many, many years working in this area. Well, today I must tell you that human trafficking is probably my least favourite subject to talk about it, to talk about. I hate it. It's awful. It's dark, it's horrible. I know that sometimes when you're sitting there at church, it's hard to listen to as well, because it, it is awful. I recently spoke to a group of year 9 and 10 students at uh, Parks Christian School last week, and as they started sort of asking questions and, and wondering why, you know, and so one of the kids was like, oh, that's just gross. I'm like, it is gross. It's a horrible, dark and disgusting world, but God calls us as Christians to engage with that and to bring justice into that area. And I believe that God is calling his church to be agents for change and a voice for those who have none. And so we must then sit and learn about these issues and sit with the uncomfortableness of it in order to be able to fight those injustices that are before us. Well, this is the burden on my heart and I can't be silent while there are still people being trafficked today. And so today I thought that I would um, share with you the story of Joseph, which is actually the story of someone who was trafficked in the Bible. And, uh, you know, usually when we hear the story of Joseph in the Bible, we're used to hearing the story of, oh, he was, he was sent into slavery, but then God used him and to, to save his people and to provide his people with grain when they were starving. That's kind of the usual take we hear in Sunday school and, you know, most of the time when people preach about Joseph, that's what we hear. But actually, the beginning bit of Joseph's story, he was, he was trafficked. He was a victim of human trafficking. And so I'd like to start just by reading that part of the story. So for those of you who don't know Joseph's story, he was one of 12 brothers. And uh, the story begins in Genesis 37, where Joseph started having these dreams. And he dreamt that his brothers would bow down and worship him. Now, you know, he was 17. He was a bit cocky, a bit sort of full of himself. And it probably wasn't the wisest thing to do, to go up to his brothers and say, do you know what, one day you're going to come and worship me. You know, he sort of put his brothers offside a little bit. And so his brothers got really angry with him. And, uh, and, and apart from that, he was also a bit of a dobber. And he was working out in the fields with some of his brothers and he went back to his father and told him, oh, you know, this brother did this and that. And so his father took him from working in the fields and gave him an ornamental robe, which just made his brothers even more angry. And, you know, an ornamental robe, the Bible isn't specific on what that was, but I imagine that it was rich and beautiful and it also meant he didn't have to work in the fields. Because who heard of someone tending sheep in a beautifully ornamented robe? No one, right? So Joseph is there at his father's house, his brothers are out working in the field and his father sends him to go and um, take a message to his brothers. So he picked this up, uh, Genesis 37 verse 12. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to them, So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. 
Then he sent them off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They've moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben, who was his oldest brother, heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty, there was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they went on their way um, to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning I will go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph to Egypt to profit Uh, in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. So we'll leave the story there and I'll just give you a quick summary of the end bit. So the Bible tells us that Joseph then found favour in Potiphar's eyes, became the ruler of his household and then Potiphar's wife thought that the Bible says Jacob was handsome and strong and, uh, and Potiphar's wife had her eye on him but Joseph refused her advances and so she told uh, her husband that he had, Joseph had uh, tried to seduce her and he had her, him thrown in prison. Then some people had um, some visions and dreams. Joseph interpreted the dreams and eventually came out of prison and, uh, and was sent to Pharaoh's household where he became second in command of the kingdom. That's like general summary of the story. So we'll pick those little bits up later. So... So here we see the story that I've never heard a sermon on about Joseph actually being sold into slavery. So although human trafficking is a relatively new term, it's been around since Genesis was written. The current day definition of human trafficking is the illegal movement of people typically for the purposes of forced labour or commercial sexual exploitation. What makes human trafficking different today is the magnitude of the problem as well as the ease in which people are bought and sold and move quickly across borders 
through things that they didn't have in the ancient world, like the internet, like planes, like um, even you know, borders of countries and, and corrupt border officials. So we know that in the ancient world, the ancient world was brutal, life expectancy was short, there was little value placed on human life. Uh, but unfortunately, we also see that in human trafficking today. Uh, human trafficking is also known as the dark side of global migration. It's a socio-economic issue of migration arising out of a culture of indifference and exploitation and consumerism. And actually, human trafficking today is about a $30 billion industry. In Spain alone, it's a $9 billion industry. So we can see this is a very, very profitable uh, industry and where there's money involved, people will take um, high risk, people will do um, anything they can to get their hands on that money. But from looking at Joseph's story in the Bible, we can see many parallels as, when, as well as many contrasts to human trafficking today. Well, first of all, as I've already said, Joseph was 17 years old. And today, uh, people that are trafficked are usually teenagers, usually girls, uh, and usually teenagers are who are trafficked, under the age of 17, actually. Most of them are well under the age of um, consent in Australia. In fact, in Spain, until very recently, the age of consent in Spain was 12. So a man could sleep with a 12-year-old and it wouldn't be illegal. Uh, and so one of our um, partner groups was actually lobbying the government to change this law. It was changed from 12 to 13 and only just in 2015 was actually changed to 15 years old. So that's like very, very recent um, change in law which has um, led to the protection of more girls in Spain. So we know that for these people who are trafficked at a young age, their life expectancy is not greater than 30 years old. Unfortunately, they're dispensable. And when they get sick or too old to work, they're simply thrown out on the streets and another prettier, younger girl is brought in to replace them. Well, we also know that from the story that Joseph was the favoured son of the family. We read about the father blessing him with the ornamental robe as the favoured son. There must have been something very special because the, the passage we read said his brother saw him coming in the distance. So it wasn't just sort of, you know, the, the normal shepherd's wear that everyone was wearing. It was obviously something that stood out in the distance. His brothers could see him coming. And it also meant that he wasn't required to work. So he was in his father's house, you know, sort of living it up while his brothers were off in the fields. Well, here we see a contrast with modern day human trafficking. Because uh, the majority, around 95% of people who are trafficked, have already been abused as children. They're not the favoured children. Their self-worth is already diminished, and they may even be trying to escape their abusers. In many cases, it's because of their social status, their gender or their ethnicity, and they have little value in their society. In particular, the women that we see in, in Spain coming from Nigeria are trafficked because they're girls. Girls aren't valued in Nigeria, particularly in this one tribe where most of the girls come from in Nigeria. They're not educated, they're not valued, and it's the role of the youngest girl of the family to provide for her parents in their old age. And so we see a lot of Nigerian girls coming to Spain. Many of the Eastern European girls come from countries that are very, very poor, and they've already been working out in the fields or making a meagre income begging or um, trying to support their family since a very, very young age. And unfortunately, um, these are the girls who are vulnerable to being trafficked. So 
So we see there the push factors of trafficking. So poverty is a huge factor which actually pushes people into this cycle. Then we also have ethnicity and gender and then the innocence of these people. And I can testify after working in an orphanage in Romania where at 16 the girls are put out onto the street with nowhere else to go. These girls have little sort of world knowledge, very little education, very few prospects. And, uh, and so they're very, very vulnerable uh, to become victims of human trafficking. And, uh, and, you know, the poverty that, that these girls live in, not just the ones in the orphanage, but the ones in the villages, the desperate poverty that they lived in. I worked in villages in Romania, that was only 10, 15 years ago, where there was no electricity or running water. People really living in desperate poverty. And so often people will try to uh, escape from that poverty to provide for their families uh, and to, to send money back home. But the problem is that then they're exploited in their poverty. Well, another common factor with Joseph and those who have been trafficked today is his innocence, as I was talking about. He was only just doing the work that his father had sent him to do. His only crime was perhaps his pride in telling his brothers that they were going to bow down to him. And he was young and idealistic and perhaps not aware of how angry he would make his brothers. And he lacked a bit of understanding about how the world works. Well, many women who start the trafficking journey are just like Joseph. They're young, they're idealistic. Many women apply for jobs um, in Spain and in, in other countries. So they, they apply for jobs as a barmaid or as a, a hotel worker or as a nanny, something that doesn't require a lot of education. Uh, and they're big dreamers. A lot of these girls are big dreamers and they think, if only I can get to that richer country, my life will be better. And, um, and so unfortunately what happens is that they then embark on their journey and when they arrive in places like Spain, Italy and Greece, their passports are taken away from them and they're told, no, it's not actually a nanny job you're applying for. And they're taken away and then trafficked onto the streets. Some people um, are simply just doing what their family to do, uh, told them to do, to go to another country and make money and send it home. And yet others are abducted and taken by force, as Joseph was in the story. Well, in, in the story we read that uh, Joseph's brothers stripped him of his robe and threw him into the well. At that moment, they not only stripped him of his clothes, but his dignity, his rights, and also his dreams. We have the benefit of history in knowing the end of Joseph's story, but he didn't know the end of his story that day. That day, sitting naked and alone in the bottom of a cold well, Joseph didn't know the happy ending to his story, or if he would even live to see another day. And such is the case for people who have been trafficked. In Spain, I work in a safe house for women who have been trafficked. It's, a, it's built like a family home. We have 10 beds. And the idea is that people, women who have been trafficked, are able to come into the house to find a place of refuge, a place of safety and healing within the context of a family setting. And, uh, and unfortunately, I've heard many, many stories of how people actually arrived in Spain, of the human rights abuses that they suffered on their journey and while they were there uh, working on the streets. And to say their rights were abused is an understatement. Their stories are horrific in the way that they were treated. But thankfully in the safe house, we see the love of God and God's grace and mercy penetrating into the lives of these girls. If they stay long enough, not all of them stay because coming from such a traumatic environment into a loving home can be quite a shock and, uh, and some of them choose to leave or run away. 
But for those that stay, they're embraced by uh, the family of volunteers that we have at the Safe House. They're included in the family chores, they need to make dinner, they learn daily living skills. And then gradually, bit by bit, we start to see God putting their lives back together, starting with their health care and then their legal status. And then finally their education and getting them to a place where they can actually get the job that they came to Spain in the beginning to get. They get trained um, well enough, they can actually get a job and start earning an income. And so that's the idea of the safe house is that we take these girls that are, have been so brutally traumatised and actually see the glory of God transform their lives. Well, another uh, common factor in this passage is deception. And uh, Joseph's brothers deceived their older brother Reuben and also their father by saying that he'd been taken by wild animals. And deception is one of the main tools of traffickers. So here we can see the means of trafficking, which they traffickers use threats, deception, abuse and curses. Uh, many of the Nigerian girls actually are under sort of a spiritual curse and they believe in voodoo. And so if their traffickers tell them that they've been cursed, it's a very strong way of getting them to actually stay with their traffickers. And then the act is by smuggling, recruitment, abduction and debt bondage. And then mostly in, um, in Europe and Spain, most people are trafficked into the sex industry with some people being um, trafficked into forced labour. Well, finally, another similarity in Joseph's story was that he was sold for profit by his family. Sadly, today many people are trafficked by family members or people known to their family. So that's one of... Um, the people. So it's quite common for yeah, family members or friends to be the traffickers, but also the false job recruiters, as I said. Organised crime groups, a lover boy who's a, a man who, who makes a relationship with one particular girl and kind of grooms her um, and then traffics her, and also a debt bondage agent. So we go on to read that Joseph was sold into servitude in Potiphar's house. And Potiphar was one of Pharaoh's officials and, and sort of the Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of detail about this but sometimes I think it's okay for us to use our imaginations and to kind of fill in the gaps. So Potiphar was a man of great influence and uh, the Bible doesn't tell us that, uh, the Bible tells us that Joseph earned favour in the eyes of Potiphar but what we don't hear is how he was treated on his arrival in Egypt as a slave or how long he worked as a slave before earning Potiphar's favour, or what his living conditions were like. We don't hear about what the merchants did with him on the way from the cistern to get to Egypt and, and what he was treated. But my guess is not very well. For the first couple of years of living in Spain, I worked as a nanny for a very influential family in Spain. They were rich and powerful people. But they had two live-in Filipino houseworkers um, who faced a highly unjust working situation. True, these girls hadn't been trafficked and they were free to leave at any time, but both felt bound to continue working to send their wages back to their poor families in the Philippines. They worked sometimes 80-hour weeks with their days off always at peril of being taken. They had no personal space or privacy and earned about two euros an hour. Although highly exploitative, this was seen as a good job for these girls because they hadn't been trafficked. Uh, and it was very difficult to then work in that context with them and, and watch sort of the exploitation that was going on for them. Well, later in the story of Joseph, we read of the injustice of Joseph being sent to prison, simply at the unjust accusation of Potiphar's wife. Although Joseph also earned the favour of the prison guards, 
Joseph himself calls it a dungeon when he's talking to his brothers. So again, we're not told the conditions of that, but one can only imagine what a dungeon in the ancient world would be like. Similarly, people who've been trafficked live in conditions which are impossible for us to imagine. Many of the girls who come to us at the safe house have actually come through a detention centre. Many of them are arrested on the street simply in the clothes that they're wearing, or in many cases not wearing. And so they're taken, not because they're prostitutes, because in Spain it's not illegal to be a prostitute, but it's illegal to work without official paperwork. And so many of these girls don't have their passports and official documents with them, and so they get taken away to a detention centre. Now this particular detention centre used to be a prison and was closed because the conditions weren't good enough for the prisoners. And yet this is where they take these girls uh, many of them just they don't even have basic hygiene items or sanitary items or clothes to wear and apparently it's very, very cold in there. Uh, and so we have a team of volunteers who go several times a week into that detention centre and share the love of Jesus with these girls by taking them just these basic hygiene and, uh, and clothing items. And many of the girls that come to the safe house have actually, we've actually found there in the detention centre. Well, thankfully, we know the end of Joseph's story. And after many years of servitude, he earned favour with Pharaoh and became influential in the kingdom, overseeing the whole rule of Egypt and becoming Pharaoh's second in command. Of course, he never could have imagined that his story would end like that. That day that he was sitting alone and naked in the bottom of the well, he just couldn't have imagined what God had in store for him and that God's plans would one day include saving his people from starvation. Well, today, there are approximately 30 million people in the world who are trapped in the cycle of human trafficking and slavery. And for many of them, there is no happy ending. However, just like Joseph, we know that the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the same God that we serve today, has a plan and a purpose for their lives. That his heart breaks at seeing his children in slavery and he longs to see freedom for the captives. That he knows each one of them by name and longs to see them restored to himself. And I truly believe that God is calling his church today to rise up and speak on behalf of those who have no voice, to be a voice for justice in the face of the injustice facing so many. We cannot be silent while even one life is still enslaved. While we're in Spain, our mandate is to train and equip the Spanish church to be a voice for justice, particularly in regards to human trafficking. When we return to Spain next year, Stephen will assume the role of social justice pastor at our church in Madrid. And the dream for this is that he will not only be a voice for our church and raise up the men particularly in our church to be a voice for justice, but our pastor dreams of him actually speaking into the, the national Spanish church to train and equip the Spanish church to be a voice for justice. So on your way out, you're going to receive one of our prayer cards. Uh, we're going still as missionaries and uh, we'd love your prayer and support as we, as we continue on this journey that God has us on. I don't want to leave it there because we know that God has dreams for these girls, that he longs to see them restored to himself. And in Isaiah 58, we read how God called his people to justice. And I believe this still applies to our church today. This comes at a time, this passage, when the Israelites were just returning from their time in exile. It's a time of reorientation as they begin to ask themselves, what does it mean to be God's people? And they're trying to re-establish the laws and the traditions of their forefathers in their new land. And they seem a bit disheartened. They say to God, we've fasted and you've not seen it. Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? 
See, they're trying to do the right thing. They're trying to go through all the right motions and put all the right things back in place in order to, to look like God's people. And so the last thing they expected was a strong rebuke from God. But that's exactly what they got. We pick it up in um, Isaiah 58, verse 3. God says, um, Yet on the day of your fasting you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarrelling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? And so here we see God's angry at his people and I imagine that they were quite shocked. I don't know if any of you have ever fasted, but it's quite hard. And you sort of think, oh, well, I'm doing, you know, I'm making this big sacrifice for God, you know. And I'm sure they were a bit shocked to receive this strong rebuke from God. And yet here we see in this passage that worship and justice cannot be separated. It's no good just going through the motions, just looking good, looking righteous and being God's people. God is saying to his people, justice is just as important as fasting. If you are my people, you will be known for the justice that you show. And so God requires so much more of us than just going through religious rituals on one hand while witnessing suffering and injustice on the other. Verse 6 and 7 show us the kind of fasting that the Lord requires. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke and to set the oppressed free. To feed the hungry and to clothe the naked. This is what the Lord requires of us. He's saying he wants to see us being practical, being serious about justice. And I know this church is a church that is serious about justice. You only just have to look at your table there on the entrance to see the missionaries that you're supporting, the, the fair trade events, Destiny Rescue that I know you've supported in the past, and also your support of us in Spain. We know that you're a church that cares about justice. And I just want to bless you in that and encourage you in that. You know, I know many of you are working for justice here in the mountains, working for those who are, who are suffering and underprivileged here in Australia. And many of you have a heart to pray and to give for those overseas as well. So I just want to encourage you, you know, as God's people, that you're doing the right thing. But sometimes in Australia it is easy to forget about injustice. We don't always necessarily see it, particularly human trafficking is very hidden in Australia. And we sometimes we feel a bit lost in playing an active part in causing, uh, playing an active part in seeing justice arise. But there are many injustices here in Australia as well as overseas. And as we heard before, if all you do is pray, that is the first step into seeing justice here in Australia and in overseas. God's church must be part of the solution. Not everyone has to care about human trafficking. As I said, I know it's a really hard topic. But I think if every Christian took this call seriously in Isaiah 58, if every Christian cared about justice, and did something practical about some form of justice, then our world would start to look different. Wouldn't we then become known as God's people who love justice and mercy, as we read in uh, Micah 6.8? Wouldn't that be our reputation as being the people who stand against injustice? In verse 8, we see the promise of God 
um, that God's people, as God's people do that, our light will break forth like the dawn and our healing will quickly appear. It says, then your righteousness will, will, then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, help and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression and the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always and will satisfy your needs in a sun-scotched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will rise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Lord as a, as a Sabbath a, day, a delight and the Lord's holy day honourable, and if you honour it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord and I will cause you to ride on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so here we see that we must be part of the solution. That God is calling his people to stand up for injustice. And as we do that, that God's glory will be revealed through, through standing up for injustice. That we will be known as his people and his church. And that healing for God's people is linked with justice. God says, then your healing will quickly appear. That as we break chains of injustice and set the oppressed free, that our own healing and the healing of God's church will follow. It's through the giving of ourselves to others in this way that God's glory is revealed to the world. So I know this is a heavy topic, but I just want to leave you with that. that this passage is clear that what God is requiring of us is to love mercy and love justice and walk humbly with our God. That worship and justice cannot be separated that they must go together as we work together to loose the chains of injustice and set the oppressed free. Let me pray. Oh Lord God, you have heard the cry of your people. You know their stories, you know their names of the millions of people trapped in slavery and human trafficking. Oh Lord, I thank you that you have not left them alone. I thank you, Lord, that you are equipping your church here in Australia and overseas Lord, that you're equipping your people to rise up. Lord God, I pray that we might be a people who stand up for injustice, that your glory might be revealed, that your church will be known for its justice and its mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.